I'm Afshin Ratansi and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from the UAE, ahead of its scheduled 1st January full membership of BRICS, along with Saudi Arabia, Iran, Egypt, Argentina and Ethiopia. A good move ahead of forecast economic collapse or a mistake to incur the anger of Washington. Someone who doesn't hold back from telling you where any money you have should be is economist and investment advisor Jim Rickards. He's a best-selling economics uh, author, former Pentagon and U.S. intelligence advisor and current editor of the financial newsletter Strategic Intelligence. He joins me from Portsmouth in New Hampshire in the USA. Thank you so much, uh, Jim, for uh, being on the show. You know, the, the global impact of the war through Ukraine became clear pretty quickly, arguably. Gaza less so. You've testified in Congress on financial modeling itself. I mean, before we get to actually the, your forecasts, why has it been, you've been warning of forecasts from institutions for, for decades maybe, but why has it got even worse? The IMF, the banks, governments, G7, all these people who work in those offices, why have they become even more terrible about forecasting the economy? Well, the reason, I mean, obviously forecasting is difficult. No one does 100% and you're dealing in probabilities. So all that's sort of a given. But the question is, why is it so bad? Why are they, you know, if you were, you know, just kind of throwing a blindfold of throwing darts uh, on binary choices, you'd be right half the time. In other words, if you knew nothing, you'd be right half the time just on a random outcome. Uh, but the official institutions are working. Worse than that, they're, they're almost always wrong. Why is that? The, the question is, you can do some pretty good forecasting if you have good models. In other words, the forecasting is based on the models, which obviously are some approximation of the economy. Um, they have inputs. The inputs are all the same. We all look at the same data uh, and you get outputs. So your forecasting is only as good as your model. So the question is, how good is the model? And the official models, the predominant models, the ones that mainstream economists use, are badly flawed. And I can give you some very specific examples. So what is uh, what is the stock market going to do tomorrow and the next day and the next day and so forth? Well, you don't really know day to day, but the, the mainstream economists have um, a, a what's called a bell curve or a normal curve. And they're like, you know, it'll be kind of 50-50 and then extreme events are very, very rare. That's what a you know, bell curve looks like. It hits the x-axis uh, pretty quickly. But that curve, that, that degree distribution, that does not reflect reality. If you actually look at empirical results, you look at the tequila crisis in 1994, the long-term capital Russia crisis in 1998, the 2008 global financial crisis, what happened in 2020. These things are happening every you know, six, seven, or eight years. That's because uh, the, it's actually a different curve. It's something called the power curve. Uh, the power curve has fewer small events and more cataclysmic events than the bell curve. So the first thing they have to do is move to the power curve. But what does the power curve really represent? It represents complexity theory. And complexity theory, without getting you know too in the weeds, it has what are called emergent properties, meaning things that come out of nowhere. You, if you had perfect knowledge, of, if you had all the data and perfect knowledge, things would still surprise you. Well, if you know that, then don't be surprised. And you should tell uh, viewers or listeners or your clients, et cetera, that these shocks happen with much greater frequency. So the short answer is your, um, your forecasting is only as good as your model. And the mainstream models are badly flawed because they assume a normal distribution of events, but that does not line up with reality. Do we have an insight into that uh, flawed modeling by the fact that they look at full employment and say, hey, things are getting uh, really good. And then, you know, Anyone in uh, Western Europe right now or the inner cities of the United States is going to tell you life is tougher than it's ever been 
regardless of the latest right. quarterly statistic. Right. That, that's a very good example, uh, uh, Afshin, because uh, labor, first of all, what those uh, low unemployment numbers don't tell you, at least in the United States, uh, unemployment is about 3.8%, give or take, which is the lowest since the 1960s. I mean, that's Hooray. true. But what they, what, what they don't tell you is that there's a very large cohort, 8 to 10 million Americans who are not working. They're you know between 25 and 54, so prime working age. They're not working, but they're not counted as unemployed because they're not looking for jobs. They're you know watching sports or eating uh, potato chips, I don't know what. But the point is, if you include that group in the unemployed, the unemployment rate would actually be more like 10%. Uh, which is depression level unemployment. So that's the first thing. The second thing they don't tell you, you have a job, that's great. The number of part-time jobs as opposed to full-time jobs um, is is very high relative to to baseline. So you you can barely get by in the United States on, on a full-time salary, but forget about a part-time salary. And a lot of people have two part-time jobs and the labor department counts that as two people working. Well, it's only one person, uh, but they're working two jobs, so they get counted Wait, twice. so Jim, so are you seriously saying they don't get this? These uh, people at the IMF and at uh, the Treasury, U.S. Treasury Department. I mean, you've explained it very clearly there. While they're celebrating, and let alone the financial journalists who celebrate the right. uh, record low unemployment. Well, they might as well hand out pom-poms and, and you know, uh, uh, college sweaters because they're like cheerleaders. I mean, their job, the, the job of Wall Street is to sell you stocks. The job of the central banks and the IMF is to engage in happy talk. They, do you ever hear the Fed? Have you ever heard the Fed? I've been following them for 40 years. Say, oh, gee, we think we're, there's going to be a recession next year. They never say that. We've had 10 recessions, by the way, since 1974, but or 69, rather, but they'll never say that. So so first of all, there's a lot of happy talk. Secondly, they do have the flood models, and we talked about that. But just to pile on a little bit, unemployment is a lagging indicator, meaning that, yeah, it'll go up in a recession, but not until you're already in the recession. If you're using unemployment to forecast a recession, you're never going to see it coming. Because um, employers or companies or entrepreneurs, if they're, you know, if sales are going down or, you know, volume is going down, et cetera, they'll do everything else first before they fire people. They'll, you know, turn down the lights, they'll negotiate a cheaper rent, they'll, um, you know, cut costs wherever they can, use paper napkins instead of cloth at the laundry. Firing people is the last thing they do. When they get around, because people are valuable and they're hard to recruit, when they get around to firing people, you're already in the recession. So if you see unemployment in the U.S., for example, or you know, going up to four, four and a half, five, it's it's too late. So there's no forecasting uh, benefit from unemployment numbers because they are a lagging indicator. But again, the the Fed is married to something called the Phillips curve, which says you know unemployment and inflation are inversely related. So if, if unemployment is low, inflation is high. If unemployment is high, inflation is low. That's their model. Right now, unemployment is low, so they think inflation is going to be high. There is no evidence for that model. The, the empirical data does not support it. In 1977, we had very high unemployment and very high inflation. Uh, you know, I remember 78, 79, 80, inflation was 15%, unemployment was 10%. That's no Phillips curve. That's the, those, th those things are not inversely related. They both went up. And by the same token, you can have periods of low unemployment and low inflation. And that seems to be the one that's terrifying them, the low unemployment and low inflation uh, as to, uh, I don't know whether they're eating the potato chips, because as you mentioned earlier, <laughs> some of those people, you right. know, it's, that's just late capitalism making them depressed. That's why they're on the sofa, arguably. That's I right. Mean, right. You know, 
speaking of the low inflation, low unemployment then, I mean, if that's happening to economies, especially in Western Europe and, and the United States, could what happens in the Middle East be enough to tip it over? Uh, because it's been bubbling along like this. Could something uh, tip it over and what was going to happen anyway? I do want to get on to optimism because you are optimistic as well and to what people should do to sure. mitigate these things. But could, could what's happening in the Middle East tip it over? Um, absolutely. There's no, there's no question about it. Let's hope it doesn't, but that potential is there. So, you know, I don't need to kind of go through what's going on in the battlefield. I mean, we all, we get plenty of information on that, but I mean, right we don't now, want to, I mean, things are happening hour by hour on this. The overall outcome correct. of it uh, in terms of geopolitics is, I mean, famously, the Saudi, uh, Saudis said no to the Biden administration to pump more oil. Right. Before, and, before and, and, all this uh, current flare up of activity there. Well, that's right. Now, the U.S. has moved two aircraft carrier battle groups into the eastern Mediterranean and put a nuclear attack submarine in the Red Sea. Now, the, only, the U.S. only has 11 of these battle groups. By the way, it's not just an aircraft carrier. They come with cruisers, destroyers, submarines, supply ships, AWACS, and, and a lot else. We have 11 of those and their entire fleets. At any given time, four of them are in for repair and maintenance or dry dock or, or whatever. So seven are kind of online. And of seven in the world, we've moved two to the Eastern Mediterranean. That is a huge commitment. By the way, China only has one. The U.S. has 11. China has one. Russia has one or two. But so the U.S. just dominates in space. So why? And they've got F-35 fighters and F-16s and uh, the, the cruisers have cruise missiles. This know, is why the share prices of these companies making all this stuff has been going performing very well. It's Keynesian military. Sure, I mean, yeah, 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 I mean, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, I mean, they're all on our recommended list. Uh, same thing with the oil companies, Chevron, uh, ExxonMobil, et cetera. They're, they're going to be, big, you know, the war is tragic. But the, financially, they're going to be big winners from all this. So why, But why has the U.S. put that much power in the eastern Mediterranean? It's not to fight Hamas. It's to fight Iran, if it comes to that. Um, but Iran has a lot of options as well, including closing, closing the, uh, 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 yeah, the Gulf, closing the Straits of Hormuz. If any of those things even get close to happening, and they're dangerously close today— the price of oil will go to $200 a barrel. Okay, let's just get, I mean, away from the politics and the tragedy. The United States is a net exporter of oil. So will that immediately reap dividends for the United States that oil costs that much? Well, uh, the problem with oil is it, it really does have a world price. You're right, the U.S. is a net exporter. Saudi Arabia is a major exporter. They sell the oil to China, UAE, uh, et cetera. But uh, it's a world price. You have Brent and you have West Texas Intermediate, and they trade futures. So uh, a, a crisis, just because you're an exporter, that's probably a comfortable place to be. But the any disruption of the kind we're talking about would send the global price skyrocketing. Now, that happens to be a windfall for Exxon, Chevron, and other uh, Pioneer, uh, other companies in the Permian Basin in, uh, in Texas. Um, but, uh, it, but it's a burden on developing economies. It's a, it's a burden on Europe, which is an oil importer. It's a burden on China, which is an oil importer. So it'll grossly slow the global economy. Yeah, okay, I, I'll get are... to Western Europe in a second, but isn't it good then? for the United States. I mean, I still don't understand, and maybe you can explain why it desperately needed the help of Maduro in Venezuela to curb short-term shortages of oil when it's a net oil exporter. But you've got a massive Keynesian reconstruction because each missile being fired to kill children has to be replaced. 
each, uh, you're sending the aircraft carriers there, these parts obviously need refurbishment, uh, billions of dollars of US federal aid, well, federal spending into military technology. You have oil at those right. levels, uh, which can be mitigated by government subsidy of some kind in manufacturing, perhaps in the United States, perhaps by a future US government. Uh, if we leave Western Europe to one side, surely the United States isn't such a bad uh, prospect. Look, a $200 barrel oil or $150 barrel oil, and again, I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm saying that could happen in, a, in certain geopolitical scenarios. Uh, gasoline at the pump would go from uh, $4 a gallon to $10 a gallon overnight. We, this happened before. This happened in 1973 when the Arab oil embargo was imposed as a result of the um, – uh, the the, uh, the 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 Yom Kippur War, uh, right? So uh, uh, oil went from four dollars to twelve dollars. Well, twelve dollars sounds pretty cheap, but it was a three hundred percent increase. Uh, and the economy, the U.S. economy, went into the worst recession since the Great Depression in 1974, and the stock market crashed fifty percent. So yeah, I mean, is there a windfall for oil companies? Yes, and if you own an oil field, good for you. But that does not translate into benefits for consumers, and the U.S. will not subsidize. And by the way, there's a large cohort in U.S. politics that would like the, the price of gasoline to double because they're in on this green news scam, um, and they actually want they want to get rid of internal combustion engines. They want to get rid of so-called fossil fuels. They want you know solar panels and windmills and all that, which don't work, by the way. Uh, but they're they're pushing that. So for for many of them, including Jennifer Grantham, our Secretary of Energy, they think ten dollar a gallon gasoline is a good thing. But that's that is what you would get okay, in the economy. We're going Jim, to we'll return to this in part two. Jim Rickards, I'll right. stop you there. More from the best-selling economics author, former Pentagon advisor and editor of Strategic Intelligence. After this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still with the best-selling economics author, former Pentagon advisor and editor of Strategic Intelligence, Jim Rickards. Jim, uh, we were talking about, uh, yeah, your environmental uh, ideas of uh, different uh, blocks within power in the United States as to the, the horrors of uh, higher fuel prices. Uh, not that uh, these same groups were very good at predicting the outcome of the Ukraine crisis, clearly. Um, I think, I, I, I mean, it's now going through recent history, I suppose. Why did they think that sanctions on Russia would ever work? Well, uh, you know, I've seen you said as a former... You said they wouldn't. I should say you said they weren't, wouldn't even when they were being uh, implemented. I said they wouldn't work before they were being implemented. I told the Pentagon that. And by the way, I uh, uh, said former advisor, I take the compliment, but I actually teach financial warfare at the U.S. Army War College. Um, and uh, I had a class in April 2022, so just a couple of months after the special uh, military operation started in Ukraine. Uh, and uh, it's a seminar style class, 13 handpicked officials, all the branches of the military, plus intelligence and, um, and State Department. And so they're, they're, these are the mid-career, mid future big brains, future three-star generals, national security advisors, et cetera. And uh, so in 2022, right after the war in Ukraine started, I said these sanctions are not going to work. In fact, they'll be worse than ineffective. They will actually backfire and hurt the United States 
more than they'll hurt Russia. They will not slow Russia down at all. Now, the class was very gung-ho. I had a you know a lady, she was a, a battalion commander in the artillery, I had a Navy commander, I had an F-16 pilot, et cetera. Uh, and they were giving me a lot of pushback, which is fine. I, I, you welcome that in a seminar format. But I, and I explained why they wouldn't work. Um, why Russia could stop selling oil to Europe and just sell it to China and India, which they've done. Uh, why they could uh, gear up, put their economy on a war footing, which they've done. By the way, fourth quarter, uh, 2023, uh, kind of, you know, uh, uh, very recent uh, data, uh, looks like the, the Russian economy is going to grow about 5%. It's even and on an annualized basis, that's overheating. Um, and the US economy may be 1.2%. So it's not just Russia hasn't been crushed. Remember uh, Biden, you know, we're going to crush the ruble. We're going to destroy the ruble. And guess what? The ruble, you know, it, it, it dipped for about a minute and then went back to the pre-war level of 70 rubles of the dollar. Today, it's a little weaker. It's about 90 rubles of the dollar, but that's not a huge change. The ruble's doing fine. The Russians, uh, they have the best central banker in the world, Avira Nabulina. Uh, what she did, she's work, been working on this for 10 years, and I've followed it for over 10 years. She put 25% of Russia's reserves in gold, physical gold, held in custody in Russia. You can't freeze gold. You can't seize it. It's not digital. It's not, it doesn't rely on SWIFT. So all these prohibitions had no impact on Russia's a large percentage of Russia's reserves because it was in physical bullion, um, you know, in uh, in in, uh, in Russia. So uh, they they've thought ahead. The Russians, you know, the chess is their national sport. They think three moves ahead. The U.S. can barely think one move ahead. Uh, but so meanwhile, it's happening in the U.S. economy. We're we're we may be in a recession. We're certainly heading for one, but we may actually be in one. Growth for the for the fourth quarter looks really weak, um, and. Uh, uh, you know, one of the reasons people say inflation is coming down, isn't that a victory? Well, you have to ask yourself, why is inflation coming down? It's coming down because the consumer has checked out, credit cards are tapped out, they've used up their savings. You know, when you go into a recession, yeah, inflation comes down a lot, but it's not a good thing because you're in a recession. I don't know what their arguments were against your uh, clear statements at the seminar, unless you're seriously saying there are Chinese spies or Russian agents in the war college, because clearly to the benefit of uh, multipolarity of uh, countries in the global south, in the Arabian Peninsula, uh, it's been amazing, the self-sanctioning by the United States and NATO countries. Why, what were their arguments against yours that sanctions would rebound and boomerang? Well, they didn't have strong economic economic arguments. I think everyone was just, you know, beginning of the war. Emotional. America's going to support support Ukraine. I think it was emotional. Yeah, but my job as a as a, a seminar leader is to teach some other ones. Now, I I did the course again in the spring of 2023. Uh, about uh, uh, you know in um uh, in in May actually, and I stood up in front of the class. And this is 2023. And I said, let me tell you what I told last year's class. I said the sanctions are going to fail. They're going to boomerang. Here's why. And I, I always back it up with specifics. And I said to them, everything I said was right. Everything I said a year ago is right. And we don't have to debate it because it's played out and you can see it in the data. They were much more attentive. had a very interesting experience. Um, I have a lot of uh, information channels that are, uh, it's very, very hard to know what's going on in Ukraine. It's really difficult because the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Financial Times, the Economist, they all lie. Basically I said, read them, the way I used to read Pravda during the Cold War, because they're all lies. But it's always interesting to know what your opponents are lying about, because that inferentially tells you what they actually care about. So you can use it. You can you can use lies through the media. 
using inferential method and, and Bayes' theorem to actually figure out what they're thinking. It's an intelligence technique. But I say that they're all lying, uh, but, but you know, interesting to see what they're lying about. So how do you get good sourcing from uh, Ukraine, from, from the battlefield and economically and elsewhere? Well, it's out there. You have to, you know, you have to cultivate it. And I've spent months doing that. So anyway, as I'm describing this, uh, so at one of the breaks, a very smart, very nice lady from the State Department took me aside and she said, Jim, could you give me those sources? And I said, of course. <laughs> and I sent her an email. I, I, I gave her all the links. But in my, I thought to myself, wait a second, you have a top secret security clearance. You're a senior at the State Department uh, and there's stuff you know, beyond top secret I can't even talk about. Um, I said, why are you coming to me for sourcing? Uh, but what it tells you is that she was getting a diet of you know, lies from the U.S. intelligence community or certainly from the U.S. media. Uh, but I, I give her credit for reaching out and saying, well, well can I get some good information? That's a, that's a really so, disturbing, that's a very disturbing story in the context of how many have been uh, killed, clearly, and yeah. how many lives and uh, livelihoods have been lost. I know you're critical of the right. Chinese economy. Uh, I don't want to go too much into that, but I would say, uh, and we will get on to what people should be putting their money in. I mean, how careful... Uh, clearly, they're encouraged uh, developing nations by what's happened post-Ukraine. How careful uh, do countries have to be about unwinding bond positions, uh, treasury bond positions in the United States, which has always been a fear, well, but uh, how careful right. do they have to be? China yeah, especially, I fear. But that has been a fear, and very few people, really a handful, actually understand what's going on, but I can, I can explain it. Uh, so the U.S. Treasury publishes data, it's called the Tick Report, uh, and it shows who owns U.S. Treasury securities, you know, China, Japan, Taiwan, you know, and others. Um, Lots of know, European countries, weirdly. I mean, I think the biggest are like Luxembourg and Ireland and so on. Well, the thing with Luxembourg uh, and Belgium, actually, uh, Belgium, yeah. is that they're they're intermediaries for China. When you see Belgian data or Cayman Islands data, that's really Chinese data. Right. So you have to know... They're just, they're just using fronts and cutouts to do Because in the statistics, yeah, you, know, you think, why does Belgium own so much of U.S. debt? Well, it's China. It's China. There's a front for China. That's the answer. But getting back to China, so you put all that together. So Chinese holdings of U.S. government securities are declining. That's a fact. Um, and same with Japan. And people go, oh, see, they're dumping their treasury. They're losing faith in the dollar. So not true. They're, they are desperate for dollars. That See, it's the opposite. There's a global dollar shortage. This is behind the curtain. You got to understand the euro dollar market and what's what's going on behind the curtain. It's not the central banks are not in control. The commercial banks are in control. J.P. Morgan, Citi, Barclays, HSBC, Deutsche Bank, Unicredit, Banco Santander. They're the ones who actually run the system and create. They create. They print their own money by making loans. Um, there's a dollar shortage, and you need. Because um, all the banking assets in the world combined are in the are in the trillions, trillions of dollars, but the notional value of derivatives, which are off balance sheet, is one quadrillion dollars. And for people who don't know the Q word, a quadrillion is a thousand trillion. That's how much you have in derivatives. They're extremely highly leveraged, and you have to put up collateral to support your positions. Well, what's the best collateral? Three-month treasury bill, six-month treasury bill. They don't even want two-year treasury notes or five-year treasury notes. They want those really short-term treasury bills. Well, if you're a Deutsche Bank or you're HSBC and you want to get treasury bills as collateral, you need dollars to buy the bills. And so one of the reasons the dollar has been so strong 
uh, you know, it dipped a little bit in, in recent weeks, but the dollar has been very strong for a year and a half, is because there's far from you know dumping the dollar, there's been a mass scramble to get dollars to buy treasury bills to support your derivatives positions. When you see Chinese uh, US treasury positions declining, what's going on is they're selling the treasuries to get dollars to prop up their own banks. That's so the reason. So it's a sign of weakness. It, it's not, it's not strength and uh, a slowness in the new BRICS world. Okay, well, very quickly, we're, we're running out of time. Really quickly, why is your uh, favorite uh, uh, precious metal not performing as well as it might? Uh, I know you've had a nuanced uh, uh, analysis of uh, gold for so, so many years. Explain why it hasn't performed as uh, magically as perhaps some uh, would have wished it for if they had put money in, and how eventually it will. Well, first of all, I would say it has. I would ask you a different question. When interest rates, when short-term interest rates went from zero to five and a half percent in less than two years, and ten-year Treasury note yield to maturity went from two percent to five percent in two years, why did gold not go down? That's the point. The fact that it's the fact that it's kind of level around 1950, uh, you know, between despite everything, dollars enough. Yeah, in other words, when, with interest rates skyrocketing, that's usually a killer for gold. It sends gold uh, crashing. But the fact that gold has held up in the face of extreme interest rate increases is actually a sign of strength because it should have gone. It usually, interest rates in gold. The dollar price of gold are move inversely, but here the interest rates have gone up, but gold has held its own. The reason for that, there are buyers, but they're not not retail. Americans have given up on they they don't really understand gold. But the central banks, the Russian central bank, the people. Okay, well, bank very quickly, the retail. Well, clearly, I, I understand that, and that and the resilience factor. But then, very quickly, where should the retail investor put it? Gold still worthwhile in the face of uh, economic catastrophe in Western Europe and the United States. Absolutely. And, and just to be clear, I recommend a 10% allocation of gold, you know, season to taste. If you're more comfortable with 5% or you want a little bit more, that's up to you. Don't put 50% in gold. Don't put 100% in gold. That's that's just bad investing, no matter what the asset class is. Okay. But 10%, yes. Well, we're not giving investment advice, we have to say, of course. And uh, But I'm, I'll put a, you know, my 10 cents, which is 10% from my <laughs> assets, definitely in there. Jim Rickards, thank you so much. Thanks. That's it for the show. Remember, we're bringing you new episodes every Saturday and Monday. Until then, you can keep in touch via all our social media. If it's not censored in your country, and head to our channel, Going Underground TV on Rumble.com to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you soon.